But in the mutual fund and stock world, we were all questioning that as financial advisors. We're saying, is 4% too high? Maybe it should be 2 or 3%. Funny enough, Wall Street Journal just in October 2021 said, hey, you know what? We found out the 4% rule is too big. Uh, it needs to be smaller, like around 3%. But think about this. I mean, even if you happen to save up a million dollars in the stock market, right, in mutual funds, and then you live on 3%, that's 30000 a year. And then you get taxed on that 30000 You are in the poverty as a millionaire. You're, an you're, you're basically a broke millionaire. You're listening to the Gorilla State Investing Podcast. We're not here to bruise your bananas with guru sales pitches, overrated fluff, or any other kind of monkey business. We simply provide the ground-pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. All right, Gorillas, today's host or today's podcast guest is Chris Miles from Mapleton, Utah. Chris is the CEO of Cashflow and Cashflow Expert at moneyripples.com. He's also got his own podcast with about close to 600 episodes, uh, and that's the Chris Miles Money Show. He's a financial coach and author. He's uh, actually co-authored with Timothy Ferris, Entrepreneurs on Fire is the book, and also has an ebook Beyond Rice and Beans. Chris has done real estate investments all the way from flips to turnkey investments. He's done uh, investments in commodities and oil and gas. Chris, welcome to the show. Happy to have you, bro. How are you doing today? Doing great, man. Excited to be here. Well, so what I want you to do is I, I kind of gave you the wave top intro, but why don't you go ahead and elaborate a little bit on, on some of the investments that you've done, kind of where you got started out and where you are today. Yeah, you know, I started out with very little financial education. <laughs> in fact, 20 years ago, the I was I was planning on trying to start some business. I wasn't sure what to do. And the first business opportunity that came along was becoming a financial advisor. Uh, and I didn't <laughs> know it was so easy to do that. Like I thought, you know, financial advisor had to be, you know, smart, you know, maybe a major in, in economics in college or finance. And, uh, and I was a sociology major with a triple minor in psychology, ballroom dancing and Japanese. So, uh, you That's know, I, I wasn't exactly the, the guy that would fit the mold, but so I thought hey, maybe I can learn something about money by becoming a financial advisor. And, and I did that for four years, right? I love being an entrepreneur because I, I think that that's one of the best investments you could ever do is, is, you know, having an actual business of sorts, even if it's a side hustle, you know, but uh, I'll tell you, after four years, I realized that people really, I, I like evidence. I like to know that things work. And when I realized that people weren't becoming financially free, I thought, okay, this, this is not good. <laughs> because yeah. I'm trying to sell this, like this is becoming my career. And, and I'm realizing that now there's like a 0% success rate. And what ended up happening is, you know, of course, when the student's ready, the teacher appears because you know, again, your pocketbook's tied to it. You have this, like your heart's at war. You're not really sure what to do. Well, one of my, one of the guys I trained to be a financial advisor left to go do real estate investing. And I, I remember it was just like yesterday, my friend, Doug, you know, I call him up to wish him Merry Christmas. And, and I thought, I wonder if he's going broke yet. So I call him up to see just how broke he is and see if he'll come back to work for me as a financial advisor. Well, I get the opposite response. He says, Chris, things are amazing. Uh, my dad and I, we've partnered on some deals and we've already doubled his income as a professor at the local university. Wow. And I said, wait, come on. That's too good to be true. You just started four months ago. There's no way that's possible. He's like, it's happening. It's, it's legit. 
And so we get this argument about what's better, stocks or real estate? Because up to that point, my experience has only been mutual funds, right? Um, and a little bit of stock trading and things like that. I actually was had become a stock coach the year prior too. So I was I was all stock market, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, finally he just stopped me. He said, Chris, how many of your clients are actually financially free where they don't worry about money? And I said, well, not worry about money? None of them. Because even the retired doctors, they watch CNN. And if you watch CNN, you're going to worry about everything. Like the, yeah. the sky is falling if you watch those kind of media networks, right? So he said, all right, well, great job not helping anybody, Chris. Um, how about this? <laughs> this is like a good friend. <laughs> I mean, oh, he's he's awesome. Like I I can't tell you how grateful I am for him because he was he gave me that little slap in the face. Because the next question he asked was, well, how many of you guys as financial advisors are financially free, not off the commissions you're earning, not off all the renewals and everything that you make off the products you've been selling, but actually doing this investing, investing in mutual funds. And as I thought about it, I realized. Wait, there's guys that have been in my office since the late 70s, late 70s, 40 years in this business, and they're still working. Yeah. And, and remember, we're telling people 30 or 40 years you can retire. Well, they can't even retire. So I said, well, none. Jesus, <laughs> none man. of them are financially free either. He said, well, there's your problem. And I said, well, well, then tell me what the answer is. He's like, I'm not going to tell you the answer. You just got done arguing with me, Chris. Come on. I said, no, seriously, tell me the answer. He says, Okay, if you're really serious, and I don't think you are, you know, I love his little pull away reverse psychology. Yeah, uh, he says, if you're really serious, go get this book, "Who Took My Money" by Robert Kiyosaki, which basically says mutual funds suck, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> and uh, and then listen to this radio show that these two real estate investors were doing locally on AM Talk Radio. And so I did. I started listening to these guys. And the funny thing is, these guys didn't really get into strategy at all. They just talked about basic principles of you know, everything from money and even like pol politics and things like that, you know, like they were obviously very libertarian leaning and things of that nature. And, and, uh, and so after a few months, I realized, I said, I got to make a choice here. Like I can either keep trying to be a financial advisor and my heart will be even more at war because now I, I know it doesn't work. So either I keep doing this or I stay in integrity and I quit. And so I, I finally just said, all right, that's it. I don't care if I'm at the height of my business, I'm quitting. I will just be a mortgage broker and I'll teach ballroom dancing on the side. And so that's what I did. I started doing that. And, um, but of course, you know, I wanted to know what these guys knew. It was driving me nuts that they, some of these guys were younger than I were. Some of them were in their twenties, financially independent. I said, well, I want to do that too. And eventually I started to learn what they did and, and focus on changing my mindset around, you know, getting away from that traditional mainstream financial advice of accumulation mentality. Yeah. And instead I switched to more cash flow, passive income mentality, right? Whereas I like to say accumulation versus acceleration. Yeah. And when I sort of switched to that, then all of a sudden, like everything became possible, right? Because, you know, before, you know, think of the traditional way, right? Again, like I'm kind of trying to answer your question a roundabout way, because again, it was always mutual funds and stocks, but in the mutual fund and stock world, you know, from a financial advisor standpoint, you know, they tell you that whole 4% rule, you know, where, you know, 4%, you live on 4% of your assets. Well, even 20 years ago, I would, we were all questioning that as financial advisors. We're saying, is 4% too high? Maybe it should be 2 or 3%. Funny enough, Wall Street Journal just in October 2021 said, hey, you know what? We found out the 4% rule is too big. Uh, it needs to be smaller, like around 3%. So 
Wall Street Journal is almost as smart as me. You know, apparently they just finally <laughs> caught up to the times. Yeah, we'll get there. But, uh, but think about this. I mean, even if you happen to save up a million dollars in the stock market, right, in mutual funds, and then you live on 3%, that's 30000 a year. Yeah. And then you get taxed on that 30000 You are in the poverty as a millionaire. You're, an impo- you're, you're basically a broke millionaire, if you think about it. And, and that was the thing that was wrong, that was I was having a hard time with. Plus, I was having a hard time with the fact that the stock market, really, if you look at the real rate of return of the S&P 500, not what they say is the average, right? Because they could do the averages all based on, you know, um, you know, like, for example, if you've ever heard about the, how average and actual returns are not the same, where, like, if you lose 50% in your portfolio, you don't need a 50% to gain it back again. Because if you only gain 50%, you only get up to... 75% of where you were, right. you have to get a hundred percent rate of return to get back to zero, right? Because you lose half, then you got to double that half to get back to zero. Well, if you do the average of that minus 50 plus hundred, that's 50 divided by two years, that's a 25% average rate of return. Hmm. And so I was teaching those averages and I realized, well, what's the actual return of the S&P? And it wasn't 10 or 12% like they always taught us. It is like, as of right now, roughly about 8.4%. And that's after the last 13 years of ups, uptrend in the market, right? So half of those you know, years were just like the last 13 where it was like 14% average. Yet we've still only averaged about eight, usually it's only we're at about seven or 8%. So when you take out all the fees and everything, you're like, you're lucky to make 7%. You start putting that in a compound interest calculator, seeing the total number, factor in inflation, not being two or 3%, like everybody says, we know it's more like five plus percent. Yeah. Uh, but even if you put a 4% inflation rate, you put that in the calculator as a financial advisor, you start to realize, dang, it's pretty depressing. This is why people aren't retiring because it's just not enough because the, the return of the market's not as high as they say, and inflation's higher than they say. And what happens is you're not making that much money. So whatever you save, even like a 401ks when people are trying to get matches, whatever you save in that 401k is about what you can live on each year. So if you're dumping, if you're max funding your 401k of 20 grand a year, you're going to be able to live on 20 grand a year, assuming everything goes normal, right? That's just not good enough. Um, and so when I when I realized that, that's where I, why I said I had to quit. I couldn't just keep teaching this stuff and realize it was just a big lie. Well, when I got into the real estate world and realized, wait, what if I only made 1% a month on, on a property, right? Yeah. Well, that just changed everything because now that million dollars, 1% a month, that's $10,000 a month, not... 2,500 before you get taxed on that. I could be getting 10,000 a month and keeping most of that because of all the depreciation and everything. So I'm making like now more than four times the amount of money with the same money. And, and that, that whole mindset shift of, of cash flow and passive income versus just accumulating and then living on less than the interest, it just changed my world and realized that there was actually hope. And, and that's why 2007, I started coming out of that and, and teach people how to do that kind of stuff. And, and yeah, now I, I do all kinds of stuff. I invest in things like, you know, turnkey real estate. I do different syndications, whether it's like with uh, apartments, self-storage, you know, that kind of thing. I even do some partnerships with some guys that do raw land of like flipping and seller financing and things like that. Um, I, I, uh, oil and gas, like some of the things like in syndications that way. But I'm really just more a passive investor now. Like I don't do any of the active investing anymore. So there's a, there's a lot there. And I want to break down some of the things that you discuss so that our uh, our listeners can kind of can kind of wrap their head around and make it tangible. But the first thing I want to yeah. say is it so- sounds like 
uh, the, the old quote, look for the vice and advice, right? So like mm-hmm. an infa- a financial advisor and not all financial advisors are the same, but I have noticed that some of the financial advisors that I've talked to, like you said, they're not financially free. So like mm-hmm. what, what advice am I taking from somebody who's not gone through it and doesn't understand what they're really telling me? Like all these numbers look great on a spreadsheet. Sure. But the reality of it is, is like for you to be financially free, there's a time element involved, meaning that how much of my time uh, is what, what's my return on time. And whereas mm-hmm. mutual funds and stocks and stuff like that are passive uh, and it, you, there are passive options in real estate and real estate mm-hmm. in my mind gets a higher return and has what I call the five, uh, pillars of wealth in real estate where you can get cash flow, but because of your leverage, you can get principal pay down, you get tax benefits, uh, mm-hmm. you get, uh, you get appreciation that the market gives you, which the stock market gives you appreciation too. hope hopefully, but the biggest one that, and to me, and correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm like, cause I don't know a lot about stocks and bonds and stuff like that is the fact that if you've got a, a, a million dollars and you go to the, and you want to look at stocks versus real estate, if you mm-hmm. get a million dollars worth of stocks, you got a million dollars worth of stocks. If you've got a million dollars, yeah. you can go to the bank and get $5 million worth of real estate and That's you're going right. to owe a mortgage on that, but you have to do the math and say, can I cash flow after my debt services? And once you start doing the math on it, you're getting your dividend, you're getting a lot better dividends than you are in the stock market. And it's just not as susceptible to like, you know, like, um, you know, let's say something crazy happens, like Ukraine gets invaded uh, and the the stock market (laughs) starts to crash. Well, our renters are still paying rent over here in the United States, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so what would be your key takeaway um, from stock markets versus real estate? What, what would you say uh, would be the argument for real estate or stocks, whichever one? Yeah. I mean, the only argument I would say for stocks or mutual funds that are, that are good is that they can be liquidated fast, right? Like where real estate, that's the one, you know, slight disadvantage is that it might take a few months, maybe. I mean, in this market, it hasn't been that, that hard, but uh, you know, it might take a little time to liquidate something. Um, but with stocks and real or stocks and mutual funds, you can sell them that day, right? I'd say that's the advantage. That's probably about it. No. <laughs> um, in truth, I mean, really with with stocks and mutual funds, they they don't have any tax advantages. Um, that's the one thing I noticed when I was a stock coach, an options trader coach. You know, we were teaching people how to do this, but people try to trade inside their IRAs and self-direct, but Still, at the end of the day, you got taxed on that stuff. You really didn't get a benefit. I mean, yeah, I put into a Roth, but then you're you're tied down with all the 59 and a half age rules and you know 10% early withdrawals and all that kind of junk, right? Um, that that's it's just not great. And and also you're taught in the stock market, high risk creates high returns. Well, that's the financial institutions telling you to take all the risk while they take none of it. Because if you think about who's smarter, banks and financial institutions have got it figured out. Yeah. Right, because they're telling you to take high risks because they let you put your money in the market. They don't put their own money in the market. You don't see. I remember that was a lie I taught as a financial advisor. I didn't know it was a lie. That's what I was taught by other financial advisors, which that's really how it works. Financial institutions teach financial advisors to tell you how to sell for those financial institutions. Right. That's really what it is. Not financial advice. Yeah. It's just financial sales. And what they would tell us is, hey, well, the number one investor in the stock market are banks and financial institutions. Well, that's where they put their money, so you should too. 
But the truth is, it's actually your money that you put with the institution and they just put your money in there, letting you take all the risk. So if, the, if, if money's lost, it's your money lost, not theirs. They're always taking out their one, 2% or so of fees that they're pulling out all the time. Whether you make money or not, they're always pulling out that consistent cash flow, right? They're pulling out those consistent fees to make that spread. You know, that's, that's where they make their money. So of course they want to tell you to keep it in there forever. You know, they'll tell you to keep it in there for long haul, pull out less than the interest. Why? Because if you keep letting your, your accounts build up over time, they get paid more and more money because they get paid a percentage of assets under management. So it's, if you just think about it, it's just all marketing. It's just all sales for them to keep increasing their profits while you are gambling your money and putting all your money at risk. The truth is high risk does not create high return because if high risk created a high return, think about it, definition of risk is chance of loss. What's your percentage chance of losing? Well, if you have a 90% chance of losing, would that imply that now we have a 90% chance of winning? Like that, that math doesn't add up, does it? Yeah. Exactly. Like this is, this is, this is common sense. That's a great thing about finances, right? The more common sense you use, the smarter you are. If you try to listen to financial advice and get all, you know, try to get all, you know, smart, you know, all woke, you know, so to speak in the, in the financial space, you really just aren't. You're actually an idiot, a total idiot. <laughs> the more you're trained in financial advising, the more dumb you are. Um, and that's the problem. And so, yeah, it's, it's not that way. But see, with real estate, I've, I've learned that the lower the risk, the higher the returns, right? I don't want to take high risks. I want to take low risk, managed risk to get the best returns possible. And, and that's, you can do that with real estate. Absolutely. And that's one thing. Well, when I talk to people, and I'm not a financial advisor, but I do give financial advice. You know, I'm in the military. I got a lot of junior sailors that'll come up to me because they see the stuff that we're doing. And that, hey, man, I want to talk to you about investing. And uh, I, you know, one of the first things that I'll do to anybody is tell them if you even read, read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and if you haven't, like, go, we can't even have a conversation. We're on the same plane until sure. you've got an outlook on finances that I don't have to break all these bad habits in a, in a, in a, you know, one hour conversation. And usually when the ones that, that when they come back to me, they're, they're you know, their, their eyes are opened up like, man, I've, I've, you know, I've got like this institutional way of looking at money, which is, you know, everybody talk, talks about it, you know, get a good education, get a good job, save, 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 retire, put some money away in your 401k or thrift savings plan, whatever it is. And hopefully by the end of, of your labor years, uh, when you reach 60 or 70, you can start pulling off of subsidies from the government, social security and live off your 401k. But the reality of it is if, if the, the, to me, the riskiest thing that you can do is nothing but that. That's yeah. the riskiest thing. If you're guaranteed, unless you've got a trust fund or you've got family assets or something, somebody else has done what we're talking about doing that set you up. If, if all you do is work, 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 save, 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 then you're going to retire and live in a way that is not as good as you're living right now. As far as like uh, your, your ability to purchase things, your lifestyle. Yeah. So the riskiest thing to me is to do nothing, but everything, like I said, I'm in the military, dude, we do risky stuff all the time, but doing yeah. risky stuff carefully is different than being risky, right? It's, That's it's right. managed risk. It's, it's mitigating risk and education is one, your hedge against risk for sure. But taking zero action because you're scared is going to be the riskiest mm -hmm. thing that you can do because you, you don't get any way forward. So if That's you had, true. if you had like, 
erase everything that you told people as a financial advisor. And now we've got Chris Miles years later, the wisdom that you have now. If you were talking to somebody who's just getting started out and say they've got some savings, you know, like 50, 50 to hundred thousand dollars in the, in the account, which yeah. way would you, which direction would you push them in? You know, it's, it's tough. I mean, because you know, you don't want to give advice, right. You don't want to like, you know, you know, we'll put a disclaimer, like there's no, you know, we're not giving investment advice right now. Right. But you know, somewhere to start out, I would start out with the easiest point of entry, right? Like what's the easiest thing to do? Um, definitely the least risky way would be, and I say this with a disclaimer, of course, because the least risky way, like I, in my opinion, would be like buying your own property, right? But I put the disclaimer on that because most of the time when I see people that do that, they buy a property in their own backyard. And it's usually the crappiest cash flowing type property. They try to manage it themselves, which is what I did. I did the same thing. I made that mistake and it was just horrible. It was a horrible experience. Um, I actually like to find, you know, properties through, you know, companies like I like to use turnkey companies, for example, that are in different markets, find a market that's actually got good, steady, consistent cash flow of at least double digit returns, like cash on cash returns, meaning that, you know, for example, a 12% cash on cash return means that you make 1% a month. So if you put a $30,000 down payment on a property, that would mean you're making net profit after paying the property manager, paying your mortgage payments and taxes, insurance and everything, you still walk away with $300 a month profit, right? Yeah. That's what it should be doing. Um, then great, you know, go for something like that. Um, and the great thing is you get all the depreciation. So you're not paying taxes on that money. Um, you get to keep all that money coming in. And so if you got 50,000 bucks, great. Maybe you can make 500 bucks a month off that and get that start and then keep reinvesting. I think that's the least risky way to go. Now, again, that being said, you know, you have more control. That's part of the reason I like, I think it has less risk because you have more control. There's your, that degree, there's no degrees of separation with you and the investment. You are there, you can call the shots. Now, not far behind, I would look at things like syndications too. You know, now if you only have 50,000 bucks and the syndication minimum is 50,000, you probably shouldn't put it all there, right? Yeah. Um, like you probably want to keep your money a little bit diversified still, or I build up a little bit more cash so you have a little bit more, but I mean, that's, that's another option too, where again, now you're hands off, um, find an operator that actually has been doing this for years, ideally, you know, somebody who's, you know, been through the, the thick and the thin, they've, they've got their, you know, their knees scraped a few times and they've, they've seen what happens when they have to pivot with different markets and, and they've got a good system and a good checklist that they go through to make sure that the property is good. It's like, if you say you're buying into apartment building and that's great, you know, and you can still get some of those tax benefits and, now you don't have any of the work. You don't have any of the, the headaches you might get with having a rental property. But, uh, but yeah, I'd say if you're going to start somewhere, maybe just start with a rental, you know, like a good profitable cash flowing rental, like not like what I see out in the Western half of the United States here where they kind of suck. <laughs> yeah. It's, I live out in San Diego and it's it, the way I see it, any NFL city, any, any city that has an NFL <laughs> team in it is, is typically your uh, you know, your, your tier one, uh, your, mm -hmm. your, uh, markets, right. So you're not going to get your good. It's a, it's big equity plays. Everything's too expensive to actually cash flow. The, yeah. the 1% rule. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. The 1% rule is kind of a standard across real estate investing as if it meets 1%, it's worth looking into doing. I try to get one. I mean, everybody tries to get more percent. I try to get around yeah. one and a half percent and not much more than that. 
because mm-hmm. what I'll tell you uh, it, it, that I've seen is if you're finding 2% deals in today's market, something's probably wrong with it. There is such thing yeah. as too good to be true. And what I've seen yeah. is if, if a property is producing 2% um, a month based on what your down payment would be, it's typically because the expenses have been deferred, which means the maintenance has been deferred and you're going to mm-hmm. buy it. It will cash flow. It'll cash flow nice, but your capital expenditures, meaning roof getting replaced, AC that's not yeah. been changed out, it's getting replaced, is going to eat away at that. And by the end of the year, you're going to look a lot closer to 1% because all the money you had to put into the maintenance. And so, so I, I agree with that. The 1% rule is easy. It's tangible. It's some something people can walk away with and say, all right, how do I bar napkin underwrite this piece of property? And that's how, that's how yeah. you got started. It's how I got started. I got started out uh, with like a house hack, had uh, and, and back then it wasn't really called a house hack. It was just, you know, bu- buying a multifamily and living in it. And that yeah, got yeah. me started. My next property was, uh, a duplex in the hood and it, it cash flowed nice. It didn't have a lot of deferred maintenance. It, it worked well. And that got the ball rolling to where now I'm, I'm on the general partnership side of syndications We're we you know, we're buying RV parks, we're buying hotels. None of that would have happened had I not bought my first property, right? My the, mm-hmm. un, done, made the decision that rental income is real. It's beneficial. And I need to take this leap into it. Right. Cause I did the stocks. Yeah. I did, I should say I did mutual funds. I bought mutual funds, right. In 2008. <laughs> right. Luckily I didn't yeah. have a whole lot of money, like five grand. And then after, after three, four years, I was like, dude, I didn't make any money. I lost money. This is cool. <laughs> right. Yeah. But but yeah, so and and that was a, you know who it was telling me I should do that a financial advisor. <laughs> That's right, the person I, that makes money when you do it. Yeah, he made his money off my sale. I mean, I'm sure he had plenty of problems after that. It was 2008 hit everybody pretty hard. But yeah. were you investing in real estate in 2008? I was. Yeah, I mean, uh, I got I got my butt kicked big time. Um, yeah. It's funny because like I was able to be financially independent in 2006, right? Um, and then 2007, I thought I had the Midas touch that everything I touched turned to gold. And so the ego and the, and the pride came in and, and then, you know, almost you put blinders on a little bit when you get to that euphoric state. And so I remember 2007, uh, it was getting to a point where I just launched a new business with some partners where teach people how to get out of the rat race, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then at that point, like I started to realize that, uh, you know, like things were starting to dry up, like right about middle of 2007, because like real estate got hit hard. Um, we felt at first in the middle of 2007 because banks tighten everything up. They started like they started restricting lending all of a sudden. We're like, well, that's weird. And uh, I remember trying to do a cash out refinance. So here's one mistake I made. Again, going back to that traditional financial advisor, Dave Ramsey method, right? Um, not not you, Ramsey method, but the Dave Ramsey method, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, where the Dave Ramsey method says, hey, you know, load up your mutual funds, pay down your house. So I, I knew I had an equity in my, my house because I was paying down the mortgage and stuff. I even put a good chunk in there. I even, even uh, got, the, got it to appreciate by building out the basement and everything. So now we have more square footage. And I, I thought I was the smartest guy in the world because I had all this instant equity in the house I just bought the year prior. Well, <laughs> the problem was, is that I was thinking in my mind, well, I can just get a HELOC whenever I need cash equity. So cool. I'm just building up equity in this house. I can get it out when I need it. Not true. Not when uh, not when things happen in the credit market. So they tightened everything up and they didn't give us warning either. I remember trying to apply for a mortgage. They said, you know what? If you get your, your score up two more points, we'll do it next month. 
So I did. And I remember the next month, got my score up beyond the two points. And I said, great. But you know what? Just last week, we made some updates and some other additional requirements we need you to meet. So do all these requirements. And then, and, you know, the next month, we'll see if uh, you, your credit's still good and we'll do it. So I did everything they asked. The next month, they said, we're sorry. We're not doing cash out refinances anymore. <laughs> Something's changed. <laughs> Something's changed here. Right? Something to brew. That was, in the that was September of 07. I mean, that's most people talk about 08, 09, but we were starting to feel it already. And then I, I talking to other real estate investors are saying, yeah, um, I'm having issues. Like I can't do the flipping and I can't do flips as easy anymore and stuff like that. And, uh, and then everything just locked up. Um, as a result, I actually lost all the equity in that property, ended up having to foreclose on it because they wouldn't even take a short sale because they were Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers were like, no, we'll foreclose before we ever do a short sale. Hmm. So all the logic was gone. Um, and I, was, I ended up being the hole between the, the, the business because we were focused on real estate investors. They were, their cash was gone. And so our business was drying up with all the expenses we had there and that expenses at home because all my income was tied up there. I cut off a lot of my streams of income to do that new business, which was a dumb thing you should never do is cut off your multiple streams of income. And I found myself in the hole 16,000 a month that I was short. And, uh, and I went from like millionaire to upside down millionaire uh, <laughs> yeah. within about a year or so. So 2008, yeah, I mean, I was letting go all my properties. Um, I was just, I, I was selling off everything. I, I turned in my Mercedes. I said, here, I'm not going to be making any more payments. You're going to take it anyways. Just take it. Yeah. And they auctioned off for $30,000 less than what I bought it for or what I had a loan on it for. That wasn't fun because then they're calling me up, calling for collection, saying, hey, you know, can you pay the 30000 No, I wouldn't have turned it in. Well, can you pay 1200 bucks a month? I said, you realize my payment was 1100 bucks a month. If, if I could have kept doing this, I would have kept it, <laughs> you know? I mean, so I was doing, I mean, I was, I was losing everything. You know, I didn't file for bankruptcy, but I was, you know, that close. And uh, so I ended up having to dig out of that hole. It took me a while. I mean, I had to pay off over a million dollars of debt. And, uh, and, and get myself built back up again. I had no credit, no money. My credit was like a, you know, 480 <laughs> after Solid. all that crap going on. You know, that's what I'm saying. Bankruptcy would have been easier. I would have had a better credit score with bankruptcy than even doing what I had done by trying to pay everybody back. Um, and so I eventually did it. And that's where I was able to get back in real estate again by 2015, 2016, um, after I rebuilt it. And I was able to be financially independent the second time uh, by the end of 2016. But it was... A hard, hard battle, I'll tell you. So I talk a lot about the the investor's tuition, right? Because you can go to college, you're gonna pay, you know, what with fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in tuition fees that you can get taught your skill set, but there's not really an investing college, right? There's uh mm -hmm. courses and 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 boot camps and seminars and all that stuff you can go to. But kind of the school of hard knocks is where, like you, you had you 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 got a Harvard level investors uh, <laughs> tuition <laughs> coming out of two thousand and eight, right? But I got my PhD in poverty. Yeah, PhD <laughs> in poverty, love it. But look at you now, right? Back to financial independence because the framework was there, the understanding of how money works, and you mm -hmm. you you understood how it works, and then you were taught a new lesson on how it works in extremis, right? But it, that's right. The, the had you just been, you know, had you just been a person who had a lot of money versus a person who knew about money, I don't think you'd be in the same situation you're in today. That's why education yeah. is so important is, is like understanding what these investments means, understanding how to read P&Ls, understanding uh, your percents on return, your cash on cash return. 
all those things are the financial, uh, the, the tuition that's setting you up now, or I shouldn't say tuition, it's the education that comes from the, the tuition of School of Hard Knocks, right? And you're able to bounce yeah. back within the same lifetime multiple times, uh, and, and, and now you're financially independent. Right. Yeah. So I want to, I want to kind of dig into that a little bit more as like, what mm-hmm. you feel like you're stronger now, uh, financially, educationally from going through 2008. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that, and that's why, like when you said, you know, what's the best starting point for an investor, that's why I said, well, you know, start with your own rental because you know, it's, it, I learned like if you don't have control of something, you know, that's where it can go out of whack. Or if you don't have multiple exit strategies, like different possibilities, it's like, you know, someone says, Hey, I can get a short-term rental. Cool. Okay. You want to do a short-term rental. That's fine. That's like another business, right? But make sure if you got a short-term rental, it could also turn into a long-term rental in case the city decides to change things and their ordinances or whatever it might be. Right. Like you have some flexibility and movement or you could sell the property. Like, you know, that's one thing about nice about single family. I mean, even though I love multifamily because it's easier to scale, it's easier to, to buy those when you have more cash because you don't want to be closing on little properties. If you got 500,000 of the cash to deploy, it's really hard. Yeah. But, uh, but at the same time, single family can sell a lot easier than trying to sell a fourplex, you know, because you try to sell fourplex, you're only looking for investors versus single family. You have the whole market that can buy it. Right. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely smarter. Um, cash reserves was a big one. Yeah, I'll tell you, like in hindsight, had I had that money not in equity in my house, if I had that in hand, it would have been much easier than trying to, you know, just load it up in the house. That's why like paying off the house, I think, is one of the riskiest moves people can make, unless you're already at the point where you're beyond financially independent, you're financially free, you have more cash burning in your pocket that you can deal with, then if you want to pay off the house. Uh, but Man, like I learned that that lesson so bad that the liquidity is so important. And so, so like you know, one of the changes I did now is like I, you know, my wife says I want to have at least two hundred thousand sitting in cash, right? Like that's liquid, not tied up in any assets, not being invested, just in cash. Now the problem with that is if you put it in the bank, you're in point nothing percent, yeah, and then you get taxed on your point nothing percent at the bank, right? Um, so I made an agreement with her. I said, listen, if we're gonna do that. Let's do the strategy instead. And the funny thing is she was actually trained as a Dave Ramsey counselor, yeah. right? So it's interesting that we ever got, you know, hooked up and married. But, uh, <laughs> you know, like, so I, I did something that you know, Dave Ramsey would pee his pants over, which was, okay, honey, here's what we're going to do. I don't want to make point nothing percent on 200 grand because that's an opportunity cost to me. Let's instead, let's keep three quarters of that, you know, earmarked inside of our life insurance policy. Because I have whole life that I use. I do like these high, high cash, low cost type policies, you know, I was like, I'm going to keep three quarters of that 150,000 inside there, making 5% tax free versus 0.05% in my bank. All right. So I'm keeping it there while keeping the other 50,000 like bank or online savings accounts and things like that. So I can access it quickly, you know, I'm doing that so I can diversify it, still make some money on it while it's there. And then of course, investing the rest of the money, using that to, uh, to make more. Importance of liquidity is is a big one, and I think it, a lot of people get hung up on what are the what's the best strategy. Because me, like my neck starts itching when I got money in the bank, uh, mm-hmm. specifically because I just see it not getting a return. But yeah. every time, and in like I took a hundred thousand dollars, put it into, uh, went in with some partners, bought a ten unit apartment complex to fix and flip, uh, or actually to to fix it and hold it. 
but there's a six month timeline on that. And we're coming up on that six months where I'm getting that hundred thousand dollars back to me. That's an absorbable. Okay. I'm going to get that hundred thousand dollars back in six months. And then I'll have cash flow from that investment. It was a very good yeah. strategy in my opinion, because that, I mean, that hundred thousand dollars is locked up. It's not liquid, mm -hmm. but I get that's it back. Right. And the only reason I want cash reserves, well, there's two big reasons. One, extremist something happens to where i need money to float to float the businesses for a while because because of a dip in the market because of uh you know like covid or something crazy happens to where the rent stop coming in for a bit or less rents yeah. come in the other reason is just for opportunities to be able to take advantage of them like this 10 unit yeah. um sometimes i mean when people say some people say cash is king some people say cash is trash I think having cash in the bank with no plan is trash. Having cash yes. in the bank with a plan is king because we were able to out we were able to bid out seven other offers specifically because ours was cash only with a seven day close, mm -hmm. no contingencies. We didn't have to worry about contingencies because we already knew the property, we knew the location, we knew the market, we knew what it would be worth once we uh once we were finished with construction and we go to the bank and we do a cash out refinance and that puts the money back in our pocket to redeploy on different opportunities. And we have calculated into where we're only going to take so much where the property still cash flows opens up another stream of income. So uh, yeah. for, for my listeners out there, whoever's, if you've got some money sitting in the bank and you don't have a plan for it, if you're not going to come up with a plan in real estate, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever it may be, you're just going to lose your purchasing power to inflation. So yeah. I, I guess the, the better answer is come up with a plan on where to put it now, like you're talking about. I've heard a lot about the whole life insurance policies to where it's getting a return that at least beats inflation, right? Mm -hmm. Until you come up with a plan to where you can open up another line of revenue. But I, yeah. I originally, when I first started investing and I saw a 30-year mortgage, was under the assumption like this money's locked up for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Well, it wasn't because my cash on cash return at, at, at one and a half percent meant that I was getting my money back roughly between year three and four, right? My yeah. down payment based on those percent returns. Or mm -hmm. I could sell the property or do a cash out refinance. It's not as liquid as, as the stock markets, but I plan to get it back and redeploy it. Right. And I imagine you see kind of the same thing. Like you want that $200,000 because you've lived through 2008. You know what, mm -hmm. you know what crap looks like. Right. Mm -hmm. But that $200,000 is still getting you a 5% return, which is at yeah. on par with what inflation is going to be. I think the last couple of years, inflation has been hyper accelerated. So you've lost some buying mm -hmm. power with it, but you've had that sense of security that said, okay, in a, in a hyperinflated market, I probably need to have some cash reserves available in case things do go completely wrong. I want to be able to deploy that stuff to, to float the businesses. Yeah. So ca cash reserves is something that, that, that I constantly battle with on like, what's my plan for my cash. Right. Mm -hmm. And how, how, do, how do you, like, other than the, the, uh, the, the whole life insurance policy, with that $200,000, is $200,000 like, like your hard limit or is it, do you allow it to dip lower for opportunities knowing that you're going to build it? How do, how do you kind of plan that? No, that's kind of our base minimum. You know, we can, we can have more, you know, at different times and it's not bad to have extra dry powder in case of opportunities as well. You know, so that's, that's more just like for my wife's peace of mind type of account. Right. Um, but, you know, we have more reserves, especially if there's more dry powder, you're saying, hey, there's some extra money I might have for opportunities. Maybe there's something that's coming up. Um, I mean, now you don't want to do that 
chronically, right? You don't want to do that long-term to where you never do anything. You know, I have one client where he's got $900,000 sitting in cash and he's just sitting. It's like, no. dude, like it's time to deploy. You should have deployed months ago. We've had plenty of opportunities, plenty of money you could have made. Do something, right? Um, but again, he's frozen in fear and you can't, you can't let that take you over. So there's, there's that balance, but no, we, we just keep that baseline. And that's for my wife. She wanted one year's of expenses. She's like, I want one year's of expenses that, you know, we just have there just in case income would dry up completely. You know, we would have that buffer. Um, so I mean, is it overkill, especially with the different income streams you have coming in? Cause we have more than enough income streams coming in where we're now actually have a new goal that we're about to hit, which is double our, our monthly expenses, right? We, you know, financial independence, when you actually can pay for your monthly expenses with a passive income, we're trying to now get credit to be double. So we're like, hey, let's just crush it. You know, let's get even well beyond that and, uh, and just keep that passive income when, growing. When you, when you said double your monthly expenses, I thought it meant like you want more. Oh, increase them? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So so uh, two times double the, the passive income. income versus basically reduce your expenses by 50% or increase your income by 100, right? That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. If, you're, if your monthly expenses are 10000 a month, for example, then, you know, try to get to 20000 a month of passive income, you know, something like that, where you have more than enough buffer that's that's there. So, so we just opened up our Facebook group, Middle Class to Millionaire, and uh, the, the, the people inside the group are we, we call the gorillas. And I see a lot of, uh, of people just getting into investing who, whenever we ask them, like, what would you do with $100,000 if you had it today? A lot of the tendency, a lot of them would say they would pay, down, pay off their auto loans, pay down their mortgage, all of these things, and then get to where they can start investing. What would be your mm -hmm. advice versus paying down uh, essentially auto loans and mortgages are pretty, pretty cheap money uh, versus the opportunity cost of not deploying it into an asset. What, what would be your advice to that person? Yeah, it's, it, I, I, my knee jerk reaction would say, don't do it, <laughs> but uh, it depends. It, it actually does depend. Um, I look at everything from a cash flow standpoint, right? Like what's it going to do for a month to month? Because that's the real reason why people want to pay off loans. It's not the balance that scares people, right? It's not the total balance necessarily. It's the ongoing monthly payments that they feel trapped with, right? And, and there's, there's good merit to that. So it depends because, you know, if you could invest and make more than a payment, like I see people with student loans, they'll say, oh, I got to pay off that student loan. And maybe it's a hundred thousand bucks, but they're only paying 500 bucks a month, let's say. Well, if I can take that same hundred thousand, make a thousand bucks a month with that real estate property, why would I ever want to pay off that student loan? Um, and I'm a good living example. I had my student loans go for 15 years before I finally paid them off. Right. Yeah. Um, so I do use a formula I call a cash flow index that I created during 2008 when I was in, in that real tough spot of how to measure, like, do I invest or do I pay off a debt? Um, I did a pot. I mean, I'm not going to go into huge detail right here for like a time, but I did do a podcast episode last year on the Chris Miles Money Show about it. But here's what it is simply like I'm really just looking at the cash flow. If I could take that money, pay off that loan, would I make more cash flow than if I invested? Right. That's really kind of what it comes down to. Um, now, if it's low interest, I might be OK with it. You know, like like car loans, auto loans. I generally don't want to pay off student loans. I don't want to pay off credit cards. Sure. Yeah. Um, we actually had a client that came through our, our, our um, you know, we have like a consulting type of thing. We do like anti-financial advising, right? Where we actually help create a plan using alternative investments versus using mutual funds, right? 
And, uh, and they came to us and said, hey, we want to get into real estate investing. We've got some cash. Help us out. And when we looked at their situation, we we're analyzing all their cash flow because we're looking at income and expenses and everything. We saw their, some of the loans that they had. And we said, you know what? What we're going to do instead, we're actually going to pay off some of these loans with some of that cash instead of investing it because we can actually free up $4,000 a month on the, on the debt side. So for them, we actually did that first. You know, we did some refinancing and stuff too. So we weren't all paying off debt, but we freed up $4,000 a month. That was way more than they would have made. We were, we were looking more like 3000 a month in total with all their money to, to make for the passive income that year. Well, now we freed up 4000 a month and now we can still make them at least another extra 2000 a month, which means now their increased cash flow is 6000 a month yeah. just with less cash, right? So that's why I say it depends. Uh, but for the most part, like do not, you know, without a proper plan or looking at those kind of things, don't pay off those debts first, because it might be the thing that costs you your freedom later on. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, where Dave Ramsey really does come into play because he, he's he got some very good methods to get you to net zero. I think if you're in yeah. debt, I think Dave Ramsey is a, a f- phenomenal source, his snowball effect where basically you chip away at the debts that you owe, but you start getting to your mortgage and your car notes, you're looking at Mm -hmm. like less than 5% interest. There's plenty of investments out there that can earn more than 5% interest. That's right. If you've got a credit card that's, that's 15, you know, 12 to 15% uh, interest on that. And you've got a $20,000 balance. I would say that is your primary you pay that down right now because your chances of finding a passive investment that are going to make more than that, uh, the risk of you taking that investment and making less means that you could have guaranteed paid off 12 to 15%. And then now you don't have to pay that. Now that, that, you know, say it was three or $400 a month can go into your savings for your next investment and you flip flop it. So again, I agree with you hundred percent. Dave Ramsey will get you out of debt, but he don't, I wouldn't say get you financially independent. Uh, he he focuses not. a lot on, on, on your standard, uh, you know, your middle, your middle-class mentality of, of don't get into a bunch of debt. Don't don't get to a bunch of expensive debt. I know he does have some stuff that, that goes beyond and, and teaches people investments and stuff, but the premise of what he was built on was getting people to net zero. Like how, how do we get you out of yeah. debt? And for me, yeah, if I've exactly. got a, a two, three hundred thousand dollar mortgage, no way am I putting two, two, three hundred thousand dollars to pay down my mortgage whenever my mortgage is at three and a half percent. I can go find an investment that pays me 15 percent and make three times my interest payments. And then I can use that investment to pay if I want. If, if I only want to do one or two investments, don't want to be a professional investor. I can use the income from that investment to, to, to hyper pay down my mortgage if I want to. I see a, exactly. a lot of people get tied up on that. They, they, the, the house mm-hmm. note is the biggest monthly expense that every middle-class American has, and they want it yeah. to go away. But the reality of it is if you buy another house that's not your primary residence and it's cash flowing, well, if you bought, how, how, many, how many homes can you afford that make money every month? You yeah. can afford as many as you can put the down payment for. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't it's not an expense anymore. It's an asset. And I want I want I want people to start getting their head around that because it, it really is the, the mindset shift that people have have to go through uh, to really start their investing career. So that's great, man. Uh, sure. Chris, do you have anything cool. to add to that before we go into our uh, our, our questions that I ask every guest? 
Yeah. I mean, I'll tell you, like, it's, it's, you're right. Like Dave Ramsey, like, and I wouldn't even use his method of paying, you know, the lowest balance or the highest interest rate card. Don't do that at all. That's why that cash flow index is more important because it's really about how much cash flow can we free up if we're going to pay off a debt? How do we pay the least amount of money to free up the most cash? So my cash flow index, the simple equation, if you ever figure it out is balance of the loan divided by the minimum monthly payment, right? So if you have a $10,000 credit card and it's a $200 a month, 10,000 divided by 200 is an index of 50. Now let's just say you have a $10,000 car loan, even if it's lower percent interest, but the payment is 500 a month, right? Well, 10,000 divided by 500 is 20. Now just looking from a common sense standpoint, if you're like, all I have is 10,000 bucks, so I pay off this $500 a month car or a $200 a month credit card, common sense will tell you the safer route is to pay off the $500 a month car loan, even if it's lower interest, because that gives you more options. You can always pay extra, to the credit card, but at least you're only stuck with a $200 a month payment versus a $500 a month payment when you do it that way. Ramsey would say, no, pay off that credit card because that's going to you know, have the highest interest rate. That's in real life. That's not going to work well. You know, that works great in a, you know, in a calculator, in a nice little, you know, test tube baby, you know, of, of a life, but that doesn't work in real life where you have all these variables and things that can happen that can throw you off course when you're trying to hit your financial goals. And that makes um, sense because because car loans are typically six years, but it's it's your monthly requirement yeah. to pay it down, right? Which if exactly. if you if you hit rock bottom financially, that that amount is going to hit you a lot harder than the minimum credit card payment. So I understand what you're saying with that. Yes. That, that makes perfect sense. Credit creditors will let you uh, pay the minimums for, for for life, right? Like so, yeah. That 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 monthly amount that you have to pay is a lot less. So might as well get the car loan out of the way. And then now you've freed up $500 a month to start putting towards your minimum credit card. Yeah. yeah. Make, that's make, what make, you make, do a 30 year mortgage. You know, that's why a 30 year mortgage, even if you could pay more, don't, don't do the Dave Ramsey method of doing a 10 or 15 year mortgage. That's risky. Even a bank, remember, think about it. Banks look at you from a risk standpoint too. When they, when you try to get a loan, what's the thing they look at besides a credit score and cash reserves, they're looking at debt to income ratio. They yeah. really want to know how high your monthly payments compared to your income. When you try to aggressively pay off a loan by force, by doing a 10 or 15 year mortgage, they actually don't like it. Um, I had a client in San Diego in your area, right? Um, he, he actually was denied a 10 year mortgage. He was trying to get down to a 10 year, even though it was lower interest and he thought it would be less risky. The bank says, no, we won't do that. So they said, we'll let you do a 20 year because of his debt to income ratio. Yeah. I told him, I said, don't you dare go to the 30 year. It's the same interest rate and lower payment. Here's the crazy thing that people don't realize, right? Is uh, the, the interest you pay on a loan is simple interest. While the interest you earn on money is compounding interest. They're not the same. So like you, you mentioned, like, you know, you just have to beat the interest rate. Well, let's just say that your interest rate on your mortgage is three and a quarter percent, right? Well, you don't have to beat three and a quarter percent to beat it. You could actually be earning 1.6% in a CD and make more money over 30 years than you would paying off that mortgage. So what I mean is this, is that if you have a $300,000 mortgage um, at three and a quarter percent, you will pay $170,000 in interest over those 30 years. The crazy thing is if you earn 3.25% in a CD, let's just say, for example, on that 300,000, say you have the 300,000, you could pay off the mortgage today, right? And that would save you all that interest, that 170,000. But instead you said, instead of paying off my mortgage, I'm gonna put that 300,000 in a 3.25% savings account. 
that 3.25%, even though it's the same as your mortgage, doesn't earn 170,000 of interest over 30 years. It actually earns about a half million dollars of interest over 30 years. It's compounding. Because it's compounding. See, okay. simple interest goes down over time. If you ever see those charts on your interest you're paying, yeah. well, compounding interest does this. So you only have to earn just less than half the interest rate to beat it. On a five-year car loan, you just have to earn exactly half. So if you have a 3% car loan, you just need to earn one and a half percent of that money that you would have used to pay the car. Um, you know, and, and so you know, think about it. I mean, if you earn 20%, by the way, that same 300,000 example on that mortgage, if you earn 20% over, actually not even 20%, sorry, 15% over the next 30 years, you'll make almost $20 million in interest. Nice. <laughs> it's 20 million versus the 170 it cost you. Do you think you would give a crap about the 170,000 if you're going to make 20 million for 15%, which we know in the real estate game, especially with all the different returns you can make, especially when you're buying with leverage, you can definitely do that. So awesome. uh, it, it seems too good to be true, but it's not. It's it's just math. It, it really is. And that's the biggest thing I want people to understand is that even when we try to figure out cash flow and everything else, you know, we try to make, it, make a minimum of at least double digit returns with any investment we do. Well, it's just math. You know, you got 100,000, great. You make 10%, drop off to zero, you make 10,000 a year. That's income, you know, like yeah. you want a hundred thousand a year lifestyle, great, get up to a million dollars. That's the simple math. Drop off a zero, you make a hundred thousand a year. If you make more than 10%, then great, you need less money to do it. Um, but you know, if you try to make a hundred thousand a year from the stock market, you're gonna have to have at least three and a half million today, not right. counting inflation in the future, right? Awesome, Chris. Well, hey, I want to move into the to the uh, the final three questions I ask every every guest now. And the yeah. first question is, is, is what's, what's been your biggest mistake in your investing career and what'd you learn from it? You know, the biggest mistake was really believing that, um, I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, not staying humble. I mean, really, you got to stay humble. You got to really look at all the areas, like what can go wrong. You know, if you always look at the, the good and just the positives, but not the contingencies that go with it. You're not really an investor. You're just a gambler. And so if you want to be a true investor, true investors try to take the lowest risk possible, manage and get their risk to as close to zero as possible so that they get the maximum gains with the lowest risk. Okay. All right. And what's been your biggest success in, in, in investing? You know, uh, really focusing on like what we talked about earlier, one, having good cash reserves just in case, you know, having that, that, that little safety net and creating the safety net of multiple streams of income. You know, like I don't just rely on one passive stream of income. I don't rely just on my business revenue. I mean, I don't need my business technically, but you know, I don't rely on just any one stream of income. I want to make sure that I have multiple streams coming in. So even if something goes wrong, even if with my rental properties, if something goes wrong, I've got other streams of income coming in to diversify me and keep me safe. Awesome, Chris. And the question uh, for the Gorilla State podcast is what really bruises your bananas in the world of real estate? Like what what information that you hear that's out there that you disagree with or you want to set the record straight is your opportunity to do so? Yeah, uh, that you should be buying and, and uh, managing your own properties in your own backyard. I mean, that's that's the thing that drives me nuts. Like I, I don't mind investing you know, in a place that I've never seen before. You know, if I in fact, sometimes I'm actually less emotional about it. Because yeah. if I go and see a property, walk through a property, I can get caught up in the potential of it, right? But if I'm like looking at just the facts, like here's what it is, here's here's what's going on. I can see the videos, I see the photos, I can see the home inspection reports, everything else. I can be much. I can be a much better judge of 
that property in some ways. You know, it doesn't mean it's infallible, but um, it, it drives me nuts when people say, oh, I invest in real estate. And then the return on equity is so low. Um, just like, uh, you know, I have a client in, in California, you know, another one around San Diego and his his property has 700,000 of equity, but he makes 200 a, prop, a month of profit. <laughs> so his return, on, he's not even, so his return on equity that, you know, 200 bucks a month, 2,400 a year on 700,000, it's not a great return. Yeah, it's like, man, we can move that somewhere else out east. That's even worse case, a 10% cash and cash. That would still make him almost about 6,000 a month versus 200 a month. Yeah, geez. Yeah, I was like, sell that sucker. I don't care if that was your first property and you loved it. Get rid of that sucker. Move it elsewhere because you're going to make way more money elsewhere. All right, Chris, I appreciate it, brother. So now uh, if people want to get a hold to you, if they want to listen to your podcast, go ahead and tell them how to do so and, and where they should go. Yeah, they can go to the Chris Miles Money Show. You can find on iTunes. You can find on YouTube, all that kind of stuff. Um, or you can even go to our website, moneyripples.com, and uh, you can even get lots of information from there as well. And your uh, your 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 calculators on the front of your website, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we got a passive income calculator on there that can show you like how much passive income you can create in the next twelve months based on your situation. It does it kind of sh few short questions, but it can figure out almost within a pretty accurate within a few thousand dollars, what you could actually create. Um, and then there's even like a playlist on that infinite banking, that whole life, you know, insurance thing. I have a whole playlist on how those things work too. Nice. And then you have the free ebook beyond rice and beans. Why don't you give a, a quick synopsis of what, I mean, why the title beyond rice and beans? <laughs> well, obviously we've been talking about Dave Ramsey, right? Yeah. Um, he's always talking about living on rice and beans. Well, uh, most of us don't want to just live on rice and beans. Um, no. So uh, I teach people, hey, you don't have to be cheap. You know, you can actually live a life still and become financially free. And so it's it's really, it's actually about what happened to me during the, the last recession, right? All that, you know, going in the hole, people always ask, well, Chris, like, how'd you get out of that hole? Like, what did you do? What were the strategies you were doing? Well, I was freeing up cash flow. I was finding money and getting creative. And uh, and I actually took those same strategies. I've helped hundreds of clients on average find $34,000 a year. So uh, that book basically is a very short read. Um, I'm not a big writer, so you can pretty much read it in about a half an hour, but it gives like the seven biggest ways that myself as well as hundreds of my clients have found and freed up money. Yeah, I, I, I've read a couple of books that, that kind of push that like, you know, you got to live like no one else so you can live like no one else. I'm like, one of the first things is like, cut out your Red Bulls, cut out your dip, cut out drinking, don't go to the movie. Yes. No, <laughs> latte factor. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah, the latte factor. I remember that. Like, no, I like going. I like going and getting me a coffee on the way to work. Yeah, it's five bucks. Mm -hmm. But if I'm worried about five bucks every single day, I get that that stuff adds up. But I could take mm -hmm. my money and invest it in an asset that gives me my lattes for the year, like quickly. And that's, uh, you, you know, I, I say this on, on, on probably every episode now, but I can't not talk about uh, the one thing that Kiyosaki says is, is not, uh, I, we can't afford it. How can we afford it? And that yeah. first duplex that I bought, I remember looking at, I, I wanted to buy a brand new vehicle and everybody, the, the way that I was raised, do not buy a brand new vehicle, buy a used vehicle. Well, I had just bought a used vehicle that broke down on me. I, I basically buying a used vehicle in my mind is now inheriting somebody else's problems because they, they, there's a reason that vehicle got turned in. They didn't want anymore because it wasn't fitting their needs. 
So I bought, I wanted to buy my first brand new truck. It was $40,000. I also wanted to get into investing, which was a, it was a duplex for $40,000 and good luck looking for one nowadays. But I, I, and I remember listening to Kiyosaki's podcast. I said, not, not how can I, or not, I can't afford it. How can I afford it? And I was either going to put $40,000 towards a truck or $40,000 towards a duplex. And when I looked at that duplex, the cash flow from the duplex itself was the exact truck payment. I said, oh, my God, I can buy this. I can buy this duplex and it pays for my first vehicle. And the funny yeah. thing is, is that it paid off my truck in five years and then I sold it. And my profit from that was 45 grand, which is what I was able to, to which was the price of my wife's car which I, I, you know, I financed the car because at that point I learned, you know, the, the power of leverage. And, but that, yeah. that decision, had I just bought the truck, all cash, $40,000, I'd be sitting right here with just a truck, no investment. I wouldn't have got started. So that's kind of, to me, the power of, I'm going to pick an asset and use the income from that to give me the lifestyle I want. You know what I mean? Not the other way around. I get the lifestyle I want where I can't afford assets. Assets will free up your, your lifestyle. You don't have to give up everything you want. Just ask yourself, how can I afford it? Well, it's likely investing. <laughs> it makes sense. So yep. that, that to me is kind of the difference in the two books. And, 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 and I love Kiyosaki, uh, all of his, his stuff from a, from an early age, actually, I got my daughter reading it now. She's 12 years old and she's already started her own sticker business. Like it, it and she's crushing it. So these concepts are, are, are simple enough to, for a 12 year old to understand if you're an adult at all, you should definitely be able to understand. <laughs> cool. Hey, well, Chris, 12 year old, yeah, yeah, you can like, do it. 12 year old starting her first bit. She's not really paying taxes. Doesn't have a business license yet, but she's definitely hustling. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, man, that's it for the show, brother. I appreciate you coming on. I hope you consider me in your network uh, for everybody out there listening. Chris is uh, the Chris miles money show. Give it a listen. 588 episodes as to today, probably by the time this launches, there'll be over 600 episodes. So I appreciate you coming on, man. And, and, uh, and hope to see you again. Looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the gorilla state investing podcast, where we give you the ground pounding truth about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Learn more at realfocus.org slash gorilla state pod.